are listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey everybody, welcome to the Jersey Guys podcast. We're back with a brand new episode today. I'm here with my co-host Tom Coyne as always. And today we've got special guest Dennis Churchill Drees from the band White Sister. And of course he also was in the band Tattoo Rodeo. Uh, He's had a solo album out and he's working on a brand new project now, uh, 1206. So we're going to talk to Dennis about all those things and more. Uh, Let's get right to it then. Hey, everybody. Uh, we're here with uh, Dennis Churchill Drees from White Sister and Tattoo Rodeo and, of course, his solo career. So we're going to talk about that all today. And uh, welcome, Dennis. How are you? Hey, what's happening? I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks, guys. Good, good. So uh, I guess what Tom and I are going to do is we'll uh, we'll start talking about, uh, you know, the early White Sister and we'll, uh, days. We'll go through that. We'll work up to Tattoo Rodeo and work our way up to your solo stuff and what you've got going on right now, if that's cool. Sure. Let the therapy begin. Go ahead. You're gonna, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you guys gonna you're gonna uncover some rocks, and I'm gonna go. I forgot all about that. Okay, well, that's cool. That's good. It's always good. Let's um, let's see how it goes. If <laughs> okay. I start crying, you know, just call me back. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, anybody who is a fan of White Sister kind of knows the story of the whole Greg Jafria thing from the first album. Uh, we could talk a little bit about that, but I wanted to ask you that: How did you know White Sister get? uh together and and you know give us that early background you know prior to the debut album um well we were uh we were just like we were all from the same town you know burbank california and we uh you know i ran into rick chaddock uh the guitarist and and uh, uh gary uh brandon keyboards and i ran into them in town you know everybody knew who everybody was you know burbank's not a very big town and uh you know, right over the hill from Hollywood, but but in the valley. And um, I heard those guys, they invited me over to come and hear them play some songs and, and this little tiny, you know, room behind the garage that their this guy's dad let them, the drummer, use and stuff. And I met those guys there, and then we just kind of hit it off. And then, uh, you know, we got out of that little room. I went into, you know, I was, shit, I was 15 when that happened. Rick, you know, I befriended Rick, and he started driving me around, and, you know, because I didn't even have a license yet. Um, but, you know, we met in that little room and then we got went through a couple of drummers and then uh, we uh, we found a little rehearsal space and then started to put some stuff together and, and we're kind of digging it and thought, hey, let's go play. So, you know, we, we hit a couple of little clubs in Pasadena and people seemed to like it. So we kind of kept it kept it rolling. And um, the, we started getting kind of popular and doing some shows at the Troubadour and the Whiskey and then the drummer at the time. Uh, was kind of unhappy with all you know how how real it got you know kind of fast and uh as white sister and so that's when rich wright uh, came into the picture i was actually uh he was actually well i was his roommate i, I moved in with rich and his dad uh, and when i was finishing high school and uh, my parents moved out of state and i wanted to stay in in la for obvious reasons and and uh so you know rich i'm like hey man come you know i know you play let's come down to rehearsal so Rich got in the band and then it took that whole turn there. And then, you know, we just kept digging in and, and the Hollywood scene and 
playing with, um, you know, all the guys that took off and were just huge, huge artists, you know, Motley and, and Rat and Tesla. And, and we played with we played with everybody. And then we finally got some attention and, and got picked up uh, through Enigma EMI. And yeah. I think that was, geez, that was like, what, 83 or something like that? Okay. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because the uh, you said about, you know, going up through the Hollywood scene. I mean, you, you were involved uh, as with White Sister on kind of in that early era of the whole Sunset Strip scene, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And what a, what a great time it was. And I, you know, I see things online right now and people, and I hear people talking about what it was and, and man, it was really, it was really something. I mean, you could go any, any weekend, Friday, Saturday, even Sundays, you could go down to Hollywood and just catch some great bands for like five bucks, you know, and almost on every given night, somebody great was playing and there was no, you know, this is no internet or nothing. So you just had to kind of word of mouth or it came out in like, you know, BAM magazine or, music connection or something, or, you know, people will go and put their big posters up along the boulevard and you could, you can catch that if you happen to be driving down the street, but it was so word of mouth back then. It was, it had a little different twist to it, you know? I was out there actually in 1992. So it was a little bit after the fact, but, uh, I mean, I could just imagine what it was like back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was crazy. I mean, there's so many good bands playing all over the place. And I mean, I, I recently stumbled on some old, uh, you know, what's what's cool about the Internet, which, you know, I, I really not a fan of the, you know, social sites and stuff. But some of the stuff that pops up on Instagram and Facebook and the old tickets, the old show tickets that'll say like White Sister, you know, Great White, Rat, Motley. And I'm like, no, oh, these are cool little things, you know. And then I, you know, I go visit my folks and my mom, of course, did the mom thing and has like, you know, the big scrapbook. And <laughs> I'll be digging through, be digging through there. Look at these tickets. Like, look, you could go see all these bands for like six bucks. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> you know? well, who were some of the bands that White Sister played with at that time? Uh, who, who was, I can't remember the name of the band now. Uh, uh, George Lynch's band, when he had that, that woman singing up front, and she was amazing. And I can't remember the name of the band. Uh, gosh, what the heck was the name of that? Anyway, they were good. Exciter. Right? Exciter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Exciter. We played with them a lot. Um, in fact, way back in the day, Rick, uh, Chaddock was taken, you know, when, when we started out in White Sister, Rick would take lessons from Randy Rhodes, um, cause he was, he was 20 minutes away at this. Well, Randy's from Burbank too. Mm -hmm. So we kind of, we had that connection, but Randy's music studio, his mom's place, Musonia was, you know, 20 minutes away in North Hollywood. And so Rick would be in the one room with Randy and I'd be down the hall trying to figure out what I was doing with Rudy Sarzo. So when Randy took off and got plucked by uh, Ozzy, Rick was working with uh, George Lynch a little bit too. So anyway, that was, uh, we played with George and his bands. Um, great. Like I said, great white uh, rat. We did a show with rat at the Roxy where somebody just brought this up to me the other day. We did a Roxy show with rat. And at the time they had a, Oh, what's his name from that? Mark Turin from the Bullet Boys was playing guitar with them. They were so pissed off at him that they 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 made him face his marshals to the wall, and they took the whammy bar off his guitar and hit it somewhere. <laughs> but anyway, that you know those shows were fun and like you know playing with playing with Motley at the Whiskey and and Tommy's you know popping into the dressing room borrowing drumsticks from Rich because he didn't have any. I mean these guys were <laughs> fucking broke. I mean everybody was just just doing their thing, you know. In fact, I ran into Tommy a couple of years ago in uh, the airport in Vegas after the SEMA show, the car show. And I ran, I walked up to him and talked to him for a few minutes. And that was kind of funny. And yeah. seen the guy in like 40 years. But, you know, just early bands like that and, 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 and how everybody was kind of, it was interesting to see, you know, who took off and how they changed and, or, or maybe they didn't, you know, because yeah. we ran into, Mot we ran into Motley in the nineties and we were working on the second, uh, 
at your rodeo record, we ended up in the same rehearsal building as them. And uh, we were in there working on it was it was Motley was in the big room and in the medium room was Kiss. And we were in the little room working out parts with Arthur Payson for the second Tattoo Rodeo record. And just talking to those guys years later and, and how things changed. And in fact, that was when Karabi was with them. They I was, was going to say, tour. was that with Karabi? That was the best yeah. record they ever did without Vince Neil. Let me tell you something. I parked, you know, we were there for, you know, a week and we, and, and you couldn't, it was a small place in Burbank and you couldn't, you know, once Motley took over <clears> the big room, you couldn't, I mean, I don't even know where Gene and, and Paul parked, but. They took over this little like 10 car parking spot. You couldn't get anywhere near the place. I parked blocks away and I'm walking down the street and the fucking sidewalk shaking. And as I get closer and closer, they're playing Helter Skelter in there, right? Mm -hmm. It is so loud. Literally, I stood there on the sidewalk was shaking and I walk inside and and uh, Gene is in the Gene is in the lobby talking to Rick and Gene, Gene remembered us from, you know, the White Sister days. And uh, I go, what the hell's going on in there? And Gene just looked at me and he goes, they just haven't grown up yet. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, you want to see something? Come here. And he takes us into their room and there's nobody in there. And he, he was, for some reason, the, the techs were in there, but, and there's Gene. Gene's got a little Ampeg, one speaker, you know, thing set up. The drums are on the floor. You know, Paul's got the little half stack going and there was just minimal shit in there. And he goes, he goes, after you've done it for a while, you figure out that, you know, your hearing is actually more, more important right. than, <laughs> yeah. than what the hell. And the sound man was down the hall remote in another room because he, he couldn't even be in the same room. Well, if so, you, you, know, if you if listen I'm, to that album that they that they did with Karabi, the production yeah. on it was incredibly massive also. Uh, you know what? Honestly, that's probably my favorite Motley album. Me too. I that's what I said. It's the, the, the best album they ever oh, yeah. did was without Vince Okay, Vince yeah. Neal. So you're, you, you feel it too. Oh, I absolutely. It. absolutely. I love it. It sounds – in fact, you know what? I, I, I was just on a little road trip the other day, and I played that whole thing through and just cranked it. But it's 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 great. But you know what I'm saying is back playing with those guys back in the day when everyone's like borrowing shit because you know, we're all broke and, and then seeing those guys that many years later in like 94, and they're just freaking millionaires, and it was just like, damn – and you can either be like, you can either be jaded and pissed about it, or you can be like me and go, fuck yeah. You know what? They got, they made it. They got oh, out yeah, of no, there. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Did they you guys ever they, play you know. with Legs Diamond at all back then? No, no, no. We never played with Legs okay, Diamond. Okay, because we had Roger on a, a couple of months ago from Legs Diamond. I was, And I know they played in the early 80s a lot on the strip too. Yeah, no, we missed those guys. We didn't, we didn't play with them at all. But it was, it was, I think the big ticket names were Motley and Rat, Rough Cut. Rough you know, cut. Tesla. Yeah, before before right. they were, te I think Tesla. Before they were Tesla, they were what City, City Kid or Kid something. City Kid. Yeah. yeah, I got a T-shirt from the Chuck Landis's Country Club with you know really City oh, Kid, wow. City Kid and White Sister and some Zeppelin tribute or something. That's I don't know. really cool. But uh, you know, because we just moved recently to we moved out of L.A. and we're up here in Idaho, and I you know I rediscovered a lot of my 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 tubs full of crap in storage, and I'm pulling this stuff out of them like look at these old shirts like i haven't seen these things for like 30 years but i saved a bunch of this old stuff and that's it was kind of funny that uh to reminisce about that and you you asking me these questions now it's like yeah i just kind of went through this looking at all this <laughs> this these old pictures and these old things that i happen to save but yeah Did the lac was a thing man it was it was there was a lot going on and there was a lot of good bands in, on any weekend did the name white sister come from the toto song it did uh, I, I figured that okay yeah, we were big, you know, we were, Toto was one of our favorite bands too, uh, me and the keyboard player, and, and we just grabbed the name and thought it was ridiculous, so we said, let's do that, because people just think, you know, not know what to think of it, so, and yeah. it, it stuck, and then, and it did, but yeah, it did actually come, and oddly enough, uh, when we were, before we got Greg Jafria, we actually had 
Luke at there come into rehearsal and check us out. Oh, really? He wanted to see if he would he would produce us. Yeah, he he knew uh, our drummer Richard Wright. Rest in rest in peace. He uh, he I think they went to the same school or something at one point, and he knew him. So oh, wow. he had him come in. You know, he came in and listened to a few songs, and then Jafria was a couple months after that. Oh, okay, interesting. Now, um, yeah. well, White Sister, I mean, it had such a unique sound. Uh, the band, yeah. you know, had the heavy guitars, almost that you know early '80s metal sound in a way with the guitars. Yeah. But you had the keyboards, you know, great vocals, great harmonies. Um, you mentioned Toto, and that's you know the namesake of the band. What other bands were were an influence for you guys? Well, you know, we were into pretty much the melodic stuff. You know, Journey, Sticks, Toto anything melodic we we, we kind of drew on and i think uh, gary and i uh were kind of the probably the mellower melodic guys um you know rick wasn't listening to sticks you know he was listening to white snake and you know heavier stuff so it was kind of the sound was sort of a the the uh the sort of wake of us slamming these different styles together you know rich was a real heavy drummer rick was a real heavy guitarist I was kind of in the middle of the road and my singing was more lightweight and Gary was very much more pop. You know, he was really into super tramp and sticks and that kind of thing. Toto. So I think the sound we did, they just like, we just crammed all these things together and it wasn't really, we didn't sit down and map it out or anything. It just, we just started playing and that's what came out. Now it just, let's talk about this. I mean, if you're a white sister fan, you know, Tom and I are, and I'm sure a bunch of our listeners out there will be very familiar with you guys, but talk about the story uh, of the meeting of Greg Jafria and how that all happened. <laughs> the Greg Jafria. Well, so I wasn't there, but I'll, I know what happened. Uh, <laughs> Rick and Gary were literally at a gas station. Uh, I think it was in North Hollywood. And Greg pulled up in his little Ferrari, his little Dino Ferrari. It was like purple, like dark purple color. And Greg pulled up and Rick, uh, Gary recognized him right away. So they started talking to him. And they just had a little conversation. Like, hey, what's up? And he's like, what are you guys doing? And, and they were, you know, they just had a little three minute convo while they were filling up with gas. And then he, they ended up exchanging numbers and, and uh, Gary and Rick got Greg to come by rehearsal and check out some stuff. And he decided that he would uh, do some demos with us uh, uh, just some real quickie cheapo demo tapes, which I also just rediscovered in my move, which is pretty funny. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so we went in and did some songs and there were, there were some good things that came out of it. And then he enjoyed working with us. We ended up getting our deal with uh, Enigma uh, initially, it was just going to be an EP, and you know Greg was on board, and we went in and, and started recording that, and then uh, it got expanded into a full project uh, after we recorded, I think, five songs, four or five songs, and then we turned it into a full album when we did the uh, the, the EMI deal, the Enigma EMI deal. So yeah, Greg just like fell, literally fell into our laps, just met him at a gas station. Hey, come over and listen to what we got going. Okay, <laughs> yeah, he said okay. You know, I mean, I mean, he could have said no, and then I don't know what would have happened. Right. But, sure. Being being from his background with the with the keyboards and everything, because Rick was such a force. Um, Rick was such a just a just a, a ball of sound. Anytime he plugged anything in, that it was uh, an interesting influence with Greg because coming from Angel with you know dealing with that with Punky, but but Greg yeah. still had his still had the keyboard pretty prominent in there. You know, it, it was kind of like the perfect fit because he knew kind of knew how to tweak that. You know. Now, talk about the song uh, Whips off the debut album. Uh, we know that was kind <laughs> of a, a song that Punky Meadows had written, right? And uh, yeah, I think it was that's actually a punky was song. It Fer- Fergie Fredrickson actually. Uh, had Fergie a sang on that. that. One of my Fergie's one of my vocal heroes. Rest in peace, too. Man. Oh, yeah. Fergie was a great dude. Um, Fergie was kind enough to, when they were recording, 
right around the time they were recording that demo, and I think Ricky Phillips played bass on that, and Barry Brandt from Angel was on drums. Uh, there was three, I think they did three songs. I have them all somewhere. I just put them on my laptop. Um, but Whips was one of them. And uh, when we were in this, when we were doing some of our demos, he would, they were working on that. And, and Fergie was kind enough to come in and work with me for a little while. And he gave me some pointers, which is really cool. Some of the stuff he told me, I still, I still utilize today. So wow. that was kind of cool. But yeah, um, Whips was on that demo. We loved it. And when we went to do the album, we're like, we, we want to do the song. So he got, you know, he and Punky said, sure, go ahead. And then uh, we, 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 we laid that one down and everybody seemed to really like it. And uh, there was another one on that same demo that those guys did called Troubleshooter, and that ended up on the second White Sister album. If you're yeah. a big Fergie Fredrickson fan, did you ever listen to the Fredrickson uh, Phillips album? Yeah, yeah, I listened to all that stuff, and and I think I still feel like I feel like Fergie. You know, I I don't know, it's it's kind of a maybe a weird thing to say, but I feel like you know, unfortunately, he passed, and we didn't get to hear even the best out of him yet. I think he still had some stuff in him that was, that was, that was, I mean, I, I don't think we heard his best still. Yeah. Well, because, because singers I, of that quality, I mean, he had obviously health issues that toward the end that we yeah. know about, but singers oh, yeah. of that quality maintain and sometimes even get better in their late fifties, early sixties. And he was exactly. developing, like, if you listen, like the, Fre I, the reason I said the Fredericks and Phillips a little later into the nineties, I thought that yeah. was his best vocal performance ever because he had more balls and thickness to that exactly. high, that to that high end of his voice exactly and i think and i think that you're, you're you're spot on and, and that's why i'm saying that I, I think there was still some our stuff to come out of him yeah you know, no, before I, we I lost the him. same way but i and i get that i mean i'm a tenor and, and i'm i'm i mean i'm working my butt off in my little studio here working on things and i and i my voice has changed dramatically over the last you know 10 8 to 10 years and 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 to that point of when you're you're doing a you spend your life doing your songs you know as a tenor vocalist in a certain area and you kind of have to learn, you know, I was, I was talking to my wife about it the other day. It's kind of like we were watching the we were watching the Lakers and we were watching LeBron. And I said, she goes, how does he still do that? And I said, well, I mean, you change. I mean, athletes, singers, people that do something for a long time have to change and modify what they're doing to keep doing it. So, you know, you're going to you're going to go to your strengths. Right. And then where your weaknesses, you got to work on your weaknesses, but you got to focus and really lean on your strengths when you get older. And for me right now, and I think what you're going to hear in my new project is that you know i'm not singing this stuff up in the steve perry stratosphere anymore you know i i, I got i brought it down a little bit but and you kind of have to first of all it didn't sound good when i tried to do that anymore but you know what i mean you kind of grow up and, and your music grows up and and, and you know and, the, and you still got the drive and you still got the 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 energy but you gotta you gotta adjust a little bit you know now, if you listen to your body and you know your body and, and you're in tune with your body you 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 grow with it as as you get older, and and that's why yeah. a lot of great, I, a lot of singers I've noticed. We were just talking about Tony Martin, the guy that sang in in Black Sabbath uh, for a while. His solo yeah. album just came out. He's in his early sixties. He's never sounded, but he sounds better now than he did thirty years ago. Right. I mean, listen to him, and he's just like it's almost like he's coming into a groove. Right oh, now, he's incredible. Know? I was just saying to my friends, like he's. I mean, I always liked Tony Martin, but you know, he's like yeah. sixty two. He sounds better yeah. than ever. You know, yeah, and I, and I think that you know a lot of that's you know you got to be you got to have a little luck with your health and everything too. Right. But, and in, in in my case, I mean, I haven't done a whole lot in the last twenty years, so I haven't been out there touring. Right. You don't like have that strain, that wear and tear on your voice with the road. Yeah, I like to call it well preserved. You know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's move on to the uh, Fashion by Passion album. 
Uh, the second sure. album, uh, Gary uh, Brandon left the band at that point, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. We went in and did. Uh, well, we went to we went to Canada and did this like little part in a, a movie called Killer Party, and uh, the song April ended up on the second album. Uh, you know, Gary played with us and he's singing on it and everything, and that song ended up in that movie. So we went to Canada and did this little like video in a drive-in. It was like a video within a movie thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and then right after that, Gary bailed and uh, he wanted to go. You know, he wanted to do his own thing. Gary was never really comfortable with uh, two lead singer things. I always loved it, and I and I, I personally am a big fan of bands that do that because I think that it just brings so many other dimensions to the I band. I agree. I feel the you same. Know, I mean, especially when the two singers yeah. have diametrically opposed voices, it adds a lot. Exactly, exactly. So, like you know, early Journey stuff with with Raleigh and, oh, and the Perry. Best. I mean, that's the that best. stuff. To me, Journey and, was never listen. the same once Raleigh left. Yeah. So that dynamic, I really love that dynamic. You know, and you know, Night Ranger did it. You know, yes. and. Uh, we were like managed by the same people as them for a while, actually. And uh, oh, yeah. I just thought I, I just figured that that I just like the dynamic. And as a performer, when you have another when you got some help live, that obviously helps you, you know, when you're out there for an hour barking, it helps a little bit to have somebody else take over once in a while, you know. Sure. So he was he just wanted to go do his own thing. So he took off and uh, uh, we were we were writing stuff for the second record. So we we ended up Rick and I ended up writing pretty much everything for the, the next record, except for Save Me Tonight which was probably our biggest, our most well-known song off the second record that ended up in the movie Fright Night. And people seem to latch onto that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's Gary, Gary singing on that. Um, he's not playing piano on it, but he's singing on that one too. And then he wrote that with us, but the other ones were Rick and I. Okay. And so we did our best. We went in and, you know, knocked some songs around and we went in with uh, producer Joel Goldsmith and uh, his father is the, his father was the famous uh, soundtrack guy, uh, Jerry Goldsmith, who did like everything. You know, Rambo movies and Star Trek and stuff. He was like a very famous uh, film composer guy. So Joel was his son. And uh, we went in the studio with Joel and he produced and played keyboards on almost everything. And um, it was kind of a weird deal because we uh, we got some studio time at a place in, in North Hollywood. And the guy, the owner of the place was really adamant about, you know, you can have all this time you want, but you have to record this song for me and put it on your album. So that's why. That's why that Jackie Wilson song's had to end the album. <laughs> Lonely oh, teardrops. And uh, that's that's why that, that freaking thing ended up yeah, on so was... <laughs> It couldn't be more out of place. No. Uh, it, the only thing that could have been more out of place was uh, the, the Beatles cover, which where did, where did that idea come from? I, Rick and I just felt like doing a Beatles cover. And we had, at the time we did that record, uh, production-wise, everything was really – you know, like Go West had come out, David Bowie. Oh, you uh, could hear it in this know, album. With, absolutely. Yeah, with blue jeans and and the really, uh, you know, the drums with the quick attack on yep. them and the, and the noise yep. gates and stuff. Um, Power Station, remember that band? Sure, uh, absolutely. So that that whole sound was just big. And we, we kind of, you know, looking back on it, it was a goofy thing to do, but we wanted that sort of sound. That's why the album sounds like that. It's got it, a lot of... It's always remained you know, like a, a mystery to me of... Way, like the the sound of the first to the sound to the second it's like almost two ex- except for a place in the heart and save me tonight all the other yeah. songs sound totally different than the first album yeah and uh you know the first album was analog and old school and the, and the second record was digital and right. um and a lot of cocaine <laughs> <laughs> but i can i can tell you that it wasn't it wasn't by me i i did, I did not partake but that was a lot of late night, you know, Rick and I, let me tell you something, Rick and I 
were sort of famous among studio people and engineers and producers for we could hang, have a few beers, and we would stay there until the sun came up mm -hmm. and work. And these guys, these engineers and these other people were in there like doing, shoving things up their nose and doing whatever they could. And we were, we were right there with them toe to toe and they would, they, they would be done by sun's coming up and they're like asleep in the corner right. and we're like, what's next? You know, mm. cause we were just going off adrenaline and, and, you know, and dumb youth. And youth, but, that's uh, what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so I, Rick and I, you know, just want to sort of clear the air that we, we never took part in that stuff, but um, there is definitely, if you, I mean, just listen. Dude, they they took the they took two machines. They took two 24 track machines on that second record and hooked them together. So we had, you know, you lose a track in between them because they have to talk to each other. But we still had 46 fucking tracks. No, you could hear. And that yeah. And could. the producer was intent on using every one of them. Right. <laughs> you know? No, so it's almost like two different. Other than like the rec the voice recognition, uh, it, it's yeah. it's almost like two different uh, bands from album yeah, to album. Yeah, it was two two very different productions. Um, I was never that happy with it. I mean, Neither there's a I. song on there. There's a song, and, and hey, I don't, I don't blame you. There's a the the song "Fashion by Passion." Rick and I wrote oh "Fashion God, by Passion." Yeah. It was a it was a Zeppelin song. It had nothing but guitar and bass and me yelping through it, and it was killer. And it turned into a digital sampled, you know, mid '80s cool thing to do song. No, it and sounded like Britpop I, of the time, like a lot of the stuff. Yeah, that, like, and uh, let me tell you something. I've always, Rick and I always wanted to uh, go back and do that song the way it was, the way it was, the way he wrote it, and the way he wrote that guitar part was just a Jimmy Page part. And was like, holy shit, here we go. And then it just turned into something we but, didn't want. But it came out sounding more like Ultravox or Spando Ballet. Yeah, yeah, and it just came out just digital and and odd. Yeah. So, you know, I go back and listen to that album. I do like to. I think "Place in the Heart's a good song. Um, "Saving the Night" I think is a good song. "Until It Hurts," uh, but the other ones, the other ones can get a little squirrely. Yeah, there's a couple of songs that are very reminiscent of the first album, but there's yeah. about five of them that yeah, it's a totally different. Yeah, thing. there's a few dub. There's a few. There's a few WTFs in there. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> without a doubt. <laughs> And how did you guys go from the label you were on onto the FM label? How did that come about? Oh, well, after the first album, it was, you know, I mean, EMI wanted nothing to do with us. They just, you know, threw us out there. And, and I don't even know why they signed us, to be honest with you. We got, like, no support from that. And uh, our, our manager at the time uh, got us hooked up with uh, that deal to do um, the FM Revolver deal. And, you know, he was... He was financing us being in the studio by placing our songs in movies. So that's okay. why we had, that's why, that's why there's so many White Sister songs and, you know, Halloween and, and Stella and um, uh, Kid. We had songs in like four or five movies. Um, yeah, Save Me Tonight was in, you know, um, Fright Night because he was licensing our songs out, getting a few grand and then putting us in this, you know, putting it in the studio budget so we could keep going and making that record. Okay, I gotcha. So then we took off and, uh, you know, so it was a, it was a really tiny deal with, uh, with the FM revolver. And then we went to the UK and we played over there for about three, three weeks. I think we went over there and played with, uh, we've just, we've got a little van and followed FM around the band FM Yes, yeah. and, uh, open for them just from all the way from Wales, all the way to Scotland and back down. It was like ridiculous, but yeah, wow. it was an adventure for sure. Now the band carried on till about 1989 or so. Did you ever record any more material? Um, well, White Sister did not record any more material. Um, but 
interestingly, and again, as I've been sort of going through the archives as after I moved and kind of like finding things and, and, and rediscovering things, there are probably a dozen songs that we used to play live back in the early days before we got signed that people loved. They were like our, one of the songs that we never recorded uh, was called More Than Just a Friend. It was very Journey-esque, very upbeat song. And it was probably, people sang along to it. And I have no idea why it didn't end up on the album. We have a demo. We have two demos of it. Um, but there are songs that were written and demoed, some of them demoed, that never saw the light of day. And I'm still trying to figure out um, what I want to do about that. Because right. recreating, you know, releasing them in the format they're in is probably not not going to happen because they're so rough. But recreating them with... You know, Rick's gone and he was the the heartbeat of that thing. And, you know, Rich is gone. And yeah. so, I mean, I lost half of both bands, Tattoo Rodeo and White Sister when, when right. I lost those, yeah. those brothers. So yeah. it's not people ask people, people ask me a lot if, if I want to, you know, go go do, record some new stuff or play. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to play, you know, with that name over my head ever again, because it's just not the same. And, um, but the music, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what I'm going to do about it. I do have about four big cardboard boxes full of reel to reel tapes of stuff that I saved out of a storage place, um, a few years ago. And, um, there are some things on there. There's some archives that I may be able to digitize and then I could go in and use, you know, Rick's, Rich's drum tracks and Rick's guitars and maybe, maybe, sort of clean up some some of those old things and release them because i think that would be kind of cool oh, even yeah. if it was even if i just grabbed four or five of them and did an ep i mean i think that would be a lot of fun oh yeah that would be great you know i mean we don't write like too. that anymore we don't we went you know when white sister got back together in 2008 and we went over and did the Firefest festival mm -hmm. uh, in the uk and you know we hadn't played those songs since like the late 80s you know here we are what 20 years later let's play these songs so we, you know, we went and got a, a buddy of mine to, to play the drums, and then we 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 weren't sure we could even pull it off. So that's why we we had a second keyboard player on that on that gig, and we had a great time. And then we started getting offers. You know, Frontiers were just throwing us offers and things, and we just you know didn't want to. We were like we were of the attitude like, look, we had a great time. It was a lot of fun, but if you want us to put an album together right now, we're not going to write songs like we did, you know, 25, 30 years ago. It's going to sound totally different, and I'm not sure that's really. I'm not sure that would, but it would have been a true White Sister album, you know. Right. Sure. Um, then we came back the next year and did the show again, and you know we had a great time. But we just turned down all the deals, and then Rick and I started working together and writing again to put something together that we didn't know what it was going to be called. And then, unfortunately, he got sick, and we lost him in 2012. The the problem with resurfacing a name from the past is that. The musicians can't write or don't want to write like they did 25 years ago, but the fan base is such that they're totally unaccepting of anything that doesn't sound like it was from <laughs> right. 1986. Exactly. Like, what do you mean you're 59 years old and you're not? That's what write I say all the like time, you right? Yeah. And you know, I try to explain that to my son all the time. Yeah, we were just discussing like the new Iron Maiden album. Like, it doesn't sound like Number of the Beast. Well, when they wrote Number of Beast, they were 25. Now they're 64. How could it yeah. sound the same way? You know? Um, yeah, it's not going to. Right. It's not. And, listen, and, I and turned, it shouldn't. When we were when we were mixing the first White Sister record, I turned 21 in the studio. Okay, I just turned 59. So no, I'm not going to write like no, that. And, I don't and, think you know. And it wouldn't be natural if you did. It would be forced. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think the best thing to do would be to, you know, 
So just to go, I'm, I'm, I'm working with Gary Brandon a little bit, talking to him and, and, uh, you know, like if I can dig up some of these tapes and there's, and they survive storage, digitize them. And maybe we can pull a few things out and throw them out there. I think it'd be a lot of fun, you know? Well, like, let's talk about, um, you talked about how things change, you know, musicians, uh, they get older, they, they different writing and stuff, but well, let's talk about after white sister was over, um, yeah. tattoo rodeo was born. Now I know Tom well, is a huge tattoo rodeo fan. I'm going to let him kind of talk about this. <laughs> right. Tom, um, I like how you guys divided up the two albums. That's cool. Um, well, Mark, so, <laughs> Mark kind of favors the white sister period more. And I yeah. m very strongly, uh, favor the tattoo rodeo period more. Well, they're so different. And, and I think what's funny is a lot of people I've talked to don't really hold both of them in the, in, in the same level. It's either one or the other, um, which is cool. I mean, they're very different. Uh, Rick and I decided to, uh, after we did the, you know, after we did the second record and we did that thing in Europe, I think that was 80 uh, in, in the UK. That was 87. I mean, it was right before my first son was born. That was 87. And we got home and we were started writing a little bit and we thought, you know what? We got to change it up. You know, I've been, we've been doing it since 1980 or something. And we thought, you know, this is, uh, we just got to, we got to switch something up. Gary's gone. You know, the keyboard player we took with us to the UK took off and it was like, you know, what do you want to do? So we just started writing songs and we went in and actually demoed a couple of things with Greg. You just reminded me of this. We reconnected with Jafria wow. and we went into the studio and demoed a couple of songs and at the time, he was putting everything together for Jafria, and he had some backing from Gene Simmons, I believe, at the time. And he was playing our demos for Gene, and I think didn't didn't uh, that first Jafria record wasn't that Simmons? Uh, the first House of Lords, I think, was on. First Simmons House record. of Lords. Oh, maybe it's House of Lords. You're right. It Lords. was House of Lords. So anyway, we were doing um, we did some demos with Greg, and then it kind of fizzled out, and it wasn't going very well, but. He had he had got us some studio time in this uh, little place in uh, North Hollywood. The guy that we owned, the guy that was running it was an engineer, and he was in there working with Paul Sabu. And um, so we got in there and started doing some demos in there, and working with Paul as an engineer and Ron Bloom as a producer. And then we're like, hey, you know, this this sounds pretty good. So we started putting it together, putting songs down. We we put a few songs down. They sounded pretty good. We had some people coming in listening to it. They liked it. We were mixing something and um, Carmine the piece came in and he was working on, they were actually trying to figure out what to do with Blue Murder at the time. And I remember I had really short hair, you know, I was a little overweight and we're in the studio recording and I just, I look like, you know, nobody's standing there. And he goes, whoa, who's singing? And they point at me. Oh, that's Dennis. And he goes, oh, cool. And I was like, that was it. And he's like, fuck that guy. <laughs> who, is that? who is that guy? So uh, I thought it was kind of funny. And, uh, but anyway, the good thing was he liked what he was hearing. So we we went in there and started working on that. We decided to change the name. And the name actually came from uh, one night at the Whiskey on, on Sunset Boulevard. We were upstairs and uh, somebody was playing. I don't know. It was it, This was like 89, 90 or something. And you just look downstairs and, and somebody said, no, nah, look at everybody's like everybody's covered in tattoos down there. You know, and Rick goes, yeah, it's a tattoo rodeo. It's a great name. Like, oh, that's, yeah, a, it's, that's it's, a cool name. It's Let's a do great that. name, yeah. I Which was really name. funny because at the time, none of us had any tattoos. So none of us looked anything like Tom. We, with the name stuck, and then we, we put it together, and we started shopping things around, and we couldn't get any action. We did a couple of showcases. Everybody was kind of, eh. We did a show at the, at, the, at the Whiskey. I don't know if you guys have ever been to the Whiskey. 
No, um, no, we're the stage, guys. No, the stage, the stage is really like, I mean, you can cram, you can cram like, I don't know, 400 people in there, maybe five, mm -hmm. but, and the stage is kind of tall. And like, if you walk up to the stage to see a band, you can kind of put your arms out at your chest and put your elbows down and just be like that height. You know, mm -hmm. it's kind of tall okay. and, and it's, it's narrow. So everybody always just took the drums down and the next guy come up because it's just, it's small, you know, mm -hmm. well, we played, we booked a show uh, and had record companies come down and we were opening for Vixen. And uh, this, this just came to my memory the other day. Cause I think Vixen just splashed something on social media about switching bass players or something. So I'm like, Oh fuck. I remember this now. Vixen did their sound check, left all their shit up. And our managers down there, like yelling at their manager. Like, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? Like get rid of the drums. They're like, no, no, we're not touching anything. So they left us enough room. Rich, Rich had his drum seat and his back up against their drum riser, like literally right there. <laughs> he, he, he had his drums down. And in front of the bass drum, there was enough room for me to stand, like maybe 20 inches. I got big feet. I got size 12s. <laughs> so I had like 20 inches to the edge of the stage. It was like, I, we can't. How are we going to do this? You know. So one of the techs goes out to the truck and gets the Anvil road case for for uh, Michael's Hammond B3 and, and the Leslie amp, you know, and they roll that they roll that the road case in and it's exactly the height of the stage. So they, they took a bunch of tape and just taped it to the front of the stage. So nobody would push it. Yeah. And my mic stand, my mic stand was out on that. So I could stand in front of the drum and we were so pissed off. I, I remember, I remember not ever being that angry before and having to do a show. I just wanted to leave. I was so fucking pissed. So they, we do our sound check. We do our thing. We're all upstairs just cursing and throwing shit. We go down there, and I guess we were so pissed off that it, it carried out on the, the music because we just we did a raging 40 minutes and got out of there, and we got signed. Uh, somebody from Atlantic did show up, and that's the night we got signed. Wow, that's, that's interesting. So Atlantic picked it up. Uh, we finished the record, and then we, we were lucky enough through our management because they uh, – we were managed by Camel Z and Camel Z had uh, a camel had uh, a night ranger. So Jack was doing the uh, Jack blades was doing the damn Yankees thing with Ted and Tommy Shaw. So, you know, they knew somebody, we knew somebody and they said, Hey, you know, jump out on the second half of their tour. So that's how we landed on that damn Yankees tour with bad company too. So we'd go out and do a little 30 minute set. And that was really good for us. Cause we, we were getting a little bit of radio play with uh, been your fool. And then when we went out and did the tour with them, we got, you know, Everywhere we could, Rick and I were, we'd grab acoustics and like the day of the show, we'd go to the, whatever the morning radio show place was, we'd go there and, you know, play live. We'd play a couple songs live and have a good time and, and get more people to go. And I mean, we'd play at these, they were playing a lot of uh, sheds, a lot of amphitheaters on that tour. That was in, this is in the summer of 91. They would pack those places. And if we could get a couple thousand people there to watch us, we were happy, you know? What leg of the tour were you on? Like what area of the country did you guys play with them? Oh gosh, we hopped on in Colorado we hopped on to Colorado and went all the way towards the East Coast. And then we went back to all the way back to the West Coast. And we were out there for three months. Oh, wow. And then we and then, yeah, we, we went all the way from started in Colorado, made our way all the way to New York, uh, down to Florida and then back all the way over across to L.A. So, I mean, Northern California, Southern California, I think Arizona maybe is where. No, we went all the way back across to Connecticut. That's right. Wow. I think Groton, Connecticut was our last show. Because I saw that, and, uh, that bad company, Damn Yankees Tour, and I don't know, maybe I saw you guys, maybe I missed you guys, I'm not sure, I don't remember. Oh man, we were on early, it was still light out when we were on, you know, it's one <laughs> of those things. But, uh, you know, we did a little 30 minutes and got out, but it was, it did it did a lot of good, we got some radio on that, we got a lot of really good experience, uh, you know, and that was, 
And that was the first time I had gone out and sang everything. You know, White Sister, like I said, we were splitting vocals. And uh, so that was an interesting thing for me to learn how to, you know, keep everything in tune and in shape to, to be out there for 40 minutes a night by myself. And yeah. uh, so it was a big, it was a learning process. Believe me, it was like, we went out there the first night and we played this little arena and there's a bunch of people there for some reason to see us too. And it sounded like, I mean, I've never heard anything sound so amazing in my life. Mm. And then um, our manager came up to us the next night and said, it's going to sound different tonight, boys. <laughs> like, What happened? What happened? And they said, well, the other bands were watching you play and they've had enough of you already. <laughs> so they shut us down and gave us like half the PA after that. Oh, really? That's <laughs> something. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like, no, fuck these guys. So turn them down. So, uh, but it was, it was a lot of fun and, and everybody on that tour was great. You know, Ted, Ted was, Ted is an interesting dude. Um, Ted was Ted. <laughs> Ted was Ted. He's very, very different guy when the, you know, behind closed doors he's a very different person than he, you know, when, when the doors, when somebody opens a door and somebody else might be listening, he turns on that other person. But, uh, He's a very interesting dude, and and um, everybody in both of the bands were very very cool to us, and and we really learned a lot going out on that thing. And then we we got off of that tour and came home, and you know we couldn't get arrested, you know nobody gave a shit. So we went in and recorded another record, and um, Atlantic kind of fumbled us at the time. Atlantic was having a hard time with rock bands back then. I mean, uh, they fumbled us, and they fumbled. Um, uh, Foreigner had just come out with that new singer Johnny uh, Edwards. Edwards, man, that guy could wail. That guy was, and good. they they fumbled that, and they fumbled. I think Badlands was out about a little bit before mm -hmm. us then too. Yes, they and dropped they the ball just, on Badlands too. Totally, yeah. And it was just album. like they got zero promotion on that second record. So then you know exactly what happened to our yeah. record. It was the same thing. I mean, we actually ran into those guys at, at Atlantic in New York, and we were talking to them. And I don't even know why these companies bothered signing us. They just didn't do anything. And we went into New York to do promotions in '91 before that tour, and. um we were we were in a waiting room going to go into this conference room and i had no idea who was in the conference room it turns out it was their big you know quarterly meeting they do with ahmed erdogan and all these people are in there the door opens and and paul rogers comes out with kenny jones we're like hey what's up you know it's cool to meet those guys you know what are you doing here and uh, and paul rogers looks at me and goes um and i never met him i'm just like starstruck trying not trying not to drool on his shoes right right and uh he goes, what are you guys doing? I go, we're, we're going to go in there and do a couple songs. Because he saw our guitars. He's like, what are you doing? We're going to go and play a couple songs. He goes, in there? <laughs> go, yeah. He goes, he just shook his head and he goes, good luck. And he walks away. I'm like, holy shit, what did we get ourselves into wow. now? You know? Well, you know, you, you, that's going to make or break a career. If you if you go in there and sound like shit, you're, you're done anyway. Right? Absolutely. Turns out it didn't matter because they weren't going to promote us anyway. But mm. yeah, we were young and dumb enough to... You know, we we did us we did two songs for them acoustically in in their conference room, just a cappella, just no mics or nothing. You know, hey, nice to see you guys. Okay, great. See you. We're tattoo radio, and we walk away, and it was like okay, and it went really well. I mean, we we played really well, but just like Badlands and and Foreigner at the time, they they just weren't doing anything. So we went in and recorded uh, the second record, and we I don't even know how we got Arthur Payson to work with us, but he worked with us, and uh, we did that second record, and we got a deal through BMG mausoleum on that one and uh, it was a lot of groundwork we just did on our own and then we couldn't couldn't get a tour and, and that was of course when everything was getting stomped on by gr the grunge movement so it was kind of over before it started you know 
The second record is uh, anything you've ever done. The second record of Tattoo Rodeo is my favorite. It's every song. Oh, on thanks, there man. Is I absolutely love that record. The songwriting is tremendous, and it's it's got a lot of the influences that you know I grew up in the '70s. So it's a lot of things. I, I hear Blackfoot. I hear Allman Brothers. I hear some yeah. of some of your vocal phrasing is is similar to Greg Allman's. The songwriting and, and where did you? I wanted to always ask you, Michael Ward. Where did you hook up with him? That guy was tremendously talented. <laughs> Michael, yeah, my, and by the way, Michael was a Michael was a huge, you know, a huge fan of that music of the seventies, which is why he he lugged around that real Hammond B three and that and that amp and mm. God, what a pain in the ass. But he, uh, he, yeah, he loved the Almond Brothers. Uh, Michael, we met through a friend of a friend. He was in another local band around the LA area, and we were looking for. When we wanted to switch gears and do Tattoo Rodeo, we were looking for somebody and we plucked them out of this melodic rock band that wasn't going anywhere. I can't even remember the name of them, but we started working with them and we hit it off right away and he kind of saw what we were doing. And he was he was in a band that was really a lot more melodic than us and he wanted to do more of the little Southern rock, little Almond Brothers. That was where his heart was. So it, he, he, he spit right in, you know. And uh, yeah, so that's how that that thing fell together. And you know, Rick, Rick and uh, Michael and I wrote those songs and you know, we Rick kind of switched gears and really went to some, you know, cleaner, smaller amps and everything was really changing at that time. I actually thought um, the second Tattoo Rodeo was better than the first. And most people don't agree with that. But I, I thought it, I, I liked it even better. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, you know, I mean, they're, they have their they're very different. I mean, I think the second one is really more organic. Yes. You know, we set the drums up in the, in this studio and and. Burbank and this big, you know, it's one of those big places you could put an orchestra in. We shoved the drums in the corner and they just sounded great. You know, when the drums sound great in the room and you haven't done anything yet, you know, mm. it's going to have a nice, you know, tone. So we just went for more of a natural, less overdubbed, a little less polished thing on the second one with Arthur Payson. And I think uh, I, I like I think it matched the songs. That album had a really good production, really nice, big, fat production. But I thought even better than than the major label one before it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, and that was Arthur. That was Arthur in a, in a big studio, just like, and nobody telling us what to do again. You know, it was just, you know, here, how, how should this sound? He goes, what do you guys want to sound like? And Rick rings in, you know, when the levee breaks and goes, see this, see, hear this? I want the drums to sound mm. like this. Yeah, and, and it does. <laughs> like, like it does. nobody's ever said that before, right? Yeah. But we got about halfway there with the drums and, and uh, you know, who's ever going to, you know, sound like Bonham? But it, it does, that he got our point. Like we wanted that natural sound i mean we used a mellotron on that record yep. michael rented a mellotron for some uh, the song charity has mellotron little a flute thing going on in it and i played a little harp on that on that album and i remember we were doing uh can't keep my woman down i brought my little fender champ amp that i've had since i was 15 years mm -hmm. old i brought it in to play the harmonica through because i figured it would sound good through there you know and uh, i dared rick to play his guitar solo through it he's got like you know six different beautiful amps lined up in this room and i go i dare you to play through that little fender champ and we used to joke that do you guys have the do you guys have the guitar center stores out there in, on yes. the east coast oh yeah yeah okay so guitar center used to put this advertisement out this little pamphlet and they'd have like the fender champ on the front fender champ used by zeppelin and we're like nobody from fucking zeppelin ever lifted right. one of those fender you know what i mean it's like what are you talking about so I used to tease Rick. I go, listen, man, you know, Jimmy Page Guitar Center says Jimmy Page used a little Fender amp, you know, and I just keep messing with him. So finally, just to shut me up, he plugged into it and played that solo, and it was perfect, and he kept it. So that so that solo, Rick's solo on, God, what, is it Can Keep My Woman Down? Can Keep My Woman Down had the vocal, yes, had it, that vocal effect. It sounded like it was through a megaphone or something. Yeah, um, and I think that's the one he played. Yeah, <laughs> he that's did. the he song. He kept his little, 
we kept his little his guitar solo through the Fender champ. Yeah. Oh man! <laughs> See, you guys are bringing up memories, but these are happy, so I'm okay right now. That's good stuff. Uh, the song "Train" <laughs> is another huge favorite of mine on this. I mean, I, I could go through every song on the sound for 15 minutes. I won't, but I <laughs> oh man, that's cool. I, I appreciate that. I, I love those songs, and I I kind of felt like when I was singing them, I, I felt like uh, I fell into a vocal area that I was really comfortable with and uh, I think it it showed in the recording it just it just kind of flowed and it wasn't a ton of takes and and I was really I was really I just felt like I was in a happy place singing those songs and they were really they were just really comfortable to me and we went out and did some shows after that and we got a uh, we got a bass player for that so I was we were doing for a couple of years that we were doing shows just around the LA area and I was out front singing for the first time uh, there's not a whole lot of of a video or anything of that unfortunately but, no there isn't um, i was actually looking for it the other day there was nothing <laughs> yeah yeah I, you know everyone saw i check youtube and i'll go i wonder if anybody found anything put it up there no there's but nothing i do i, I already I got a grainy uh i got a grainy video of us doing every picture tells a story with robin mccauley which really? i'm trying to figure out if i can clean it up enough to post it but that that was kind of fun yeah, i thought the best uh, the best song on the song. album see if you agree with me or not was chamber of mary's gun oh man i think chamber of mary's gun is probably the most like Rick and I used to call it our most grown-up song because um, I felt like I felt like well, thank you, man. We, we, you know, Rick wrote probably seventy-five percent of that song. Okay. And I just, I just, when I listen to it now, even I go, look at that. We, we, we did a tune where we didn't have to like go bombastic, and and I didn't have to sing crazy, and you know, but it's still it got it, it connects. I think and. Uh, we didn't do a bunch of takes of it, and I think Rick's solo, that's one of his best guitar solos on that thing. It's just its just so beautiful, and, and uh, the song had this little vibe. It found its little its little place, and uh, it is probably one of my favorite songs out there as well. It's, it's got a depressing vibe, but it also has a vibe. I've used this song when I've gone running also. its It's, it's got like a real adrenaline kick, but it's also got a very depressing vibe to it, too. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think... Uh, Charity to me, the depression comes in when I listen to Charity. <laughs> oh, Charity too, yeah. Because Rick was Rick wrote a lot of those lyrics, and he was in a, he was just done with the news and all the bullshit going on in the world, and he definitely came through in that song. <laughs> no, it's a it's a great piece of work. The, the the biggest problem with this was that it was at not a great time for this type of music. Yeah, we uh, unfortunately there's dozens of bands that came out with some stuff that I think yeah. was interesting, and they just it, this got squashed. Just I mean, it was just a big giant Godzilla squash. You know, it was over. And just to give Michael Ward a little plug, his solo record is terrific. Also, yeah, Michael's doing really well. He's actually uh, he's doing some writing now and theme music, and he's got a couple of TV shows under his belt. And if you've seen that game show, The Wall, yes. it looks like a giant pachinko machine. That's Michael's music. Uh, he's a really nice. I corresponded with him years ago when I got the uh, his when his first solo record came out. I think he was just distributing it himself, and I got it from him. And, yeah, uh, yeah, very very nice guy to to talk to, and uh, and he actually did a cover of uh, Chamber of Mary's Gun on his solo album. Yeah, he did. He did. What surprised the hell out of me when I saw yeah, that. I yeah. Like, oh, hey, look at that. Yeah. Now really Michael's good. We still we're still in contact. I don't talk to Gary much anymore. He's got his own little life going on, but Michael and I we stay in contact. Yeah. In fact, Michael's running the Michael's running the Tattoo Rodeo Instagram page. That's him. <laughs> now, after the Tattoo Rodeo days, uh, you mentioned you touched on it before. You know, White Sister had a little bit of a reformation in a way. You played the Firefest shows 2008, 2009. But now, yeah. fast forward ahead to that, to uh, 2015, you put out a solo album simply titled I. So, uh, yeah. And you mentioned Paul Sabu earlier. Uh, talk a little bit about your solo album. 
you know, like I said, Rick and I were working on some songs when he was got sick and uh, in 2012, and um, those aren't those are not what ended up on my album. But I've still got a couple of tunes that he and I did that I don't know what I'll ever do with. But um, I kept writing by myself, and I would come up with these pieces, and I put them on my phone, and I'd go, you know, sit on the coffee table and talk to him, and, and he was in bad shape on the couch, and I would play him these songs, and like, you know look, man, I need you to help me finish these. Get up, you know, get up off that couch and let's go record these. You know, I was trying to get them going. But uh, I just kept writing and writing as a sort of a means of therapy, really. And and then when he passed, he passed at the end of 2012. It hit me pretty hard. I mean, this this is a guy that 30 plus years was my best friend, you know. And then we'd, we'd gone through so many music uh, adventures together. Uh, like I said, when I met him, I was 15 and he used to drive my ass. I mean, he took me to my first concert, which was uh, Van Halen. You know, and he took me in his little mini truck and we drove, he drove me down there and I was only 15. But uh, so I, it was a big loss for me in a lot of ways. So I kind of shut down for a little while. And then, and then uh, my wife, uh, Denise and uh, and uh, Rick's wife, you know, kind of like encouraged me to like, you know, you should go finish your record. And I think Rick would want you to do that. So I buckled down and around. I don't know, it was probably 20 into 2013 going into 2014. I started just working up these songs and. I kind of reconnected with Paul Sabu, who, who, like I said, worked on the first, uh, he engineered the first um, Tattoo Rodeo record for us. And geez, I hadn't talked to him in years. And he just like fell back into my life, which was a really interesting thing after I lost Rick. Oh, look, here's another, here's another guitar player that sings. And like, you know, what are you doing? You know what I mean? So we kind of connected and started throwing music back and forth. And what I did was I wrote all my songs on this Tascam, you know, tabletop Tascam digital workstation that does like eight tracks, I think, at a time. And I started demoing. I was demoing up all my songs. And, and uh, you know, I'm certainly not an engineer. And I'm trying to trying to get all these down into into a format that somebody can can uh, make sense out of. And I would record stuff and send it to him. And he was like, we just decided, like, let's do this. So totally independent. I wrote everything. Um Paul, uh, the one unfortunate thing I think about the record is that it doesn't have a real drummer on it, which, you know, I just couldn't I couldn't afford or or I had no means to uh, pull that off. So that's why the drums are programmed. But I think Paul did a pretty good job of faking it on that. But um, so so Paul programmed the drums and played all the guitars and and some of the keyboards. And I played some of the keyboards and Eric Ranio played some keyboards and wrote everything. And he mixed it all and we put it together and. It was really, uh, truly not just throwing the word out there, but it really was therapy. I mean, I would, you know, I had a day job and I would do my thing and, and uh, you know, be out the door by eight in the morning and I'd come home at night around six or seven and, you know, do my thing. The kids are older, you know, and didn't need me as much. And I, everybody would go to bed and I'd sit in this little corner of my, my house in Burbank at a little, little corner or just a desk and a little small place to write and work. And I'd put headphones on and just work. I think doing that and writing those songs and getting it out of my system was was really good for me mentally and helped me get through all the all that bullshit, you know, losing Rich and then losing Rick, you know, six years later using Rick. And um, the whole thing was like just such a mind trip. So I had a lot of dreams about, you know, I kept having these reoccurring dreams where we would be like loading up for a show in L.A., you know, and Rick was there loading up the truck. And I'm like, why is how is he here? Hmm. You know? But in the dream, if I told anybody he was there, he would disappear. Wow. Like, do you see him? Then he'd be gone. So <laughs> I could I could interact with him, but I couldn't tell anybody I saw him. So I kept having those dreams, and it was really starting to bug me. And I, I wrote the song, uh, So Good to See You, for him about those dreams. And as soon as I finished the song, this, the dream stopped, which is really it was 
total mind blow for me. Yeah. Uh, so, so I know it did me some good to, to, if anything, to do that. You know what I mean? And, and, uh, I was really happy to have that opportunity to just put that together and, and get that album out there. I didn't, I wasn't expecting anything of it. I, I didn't, I wasn't expecting to sell thousands of copies or anything. I just wanted it out there. And, right. uh, most people seem to like it. I mean, I didn't see a lot of bad press on it, but it, it was, um, uh, it kind of re-energized me and it kind of got me out of that rock I was hiding under. Yeah. Um, I wanted to basically now fast forward a little bit further ahead to the last few years and you have a new project now, which is titled 1206. So let's talk yes. about that. 1206 project. That's uh, It's now been about five years in the making. It's crazy how long it's taken with the pandemic slammed in the middle of it. It really messed it up. But um, I befriended this gentleman named Stan Cody. And Stan Cody is a brilliant engineer, guitarist, keyboardist who used to play back in the late 80s. He played with Kevin Gilbert from mm -hmm. Toy Matinee. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, giraffe. So he and hey, look at that guy. Look at you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Giraffe. That's right. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. I'm impressed. So anyway, Stan hasn't been doing any music, you know, at all since I think the early mid 90s. And uh, I kind of befriended him through somebody through my day job and we kind of connected and just started talking. And he is a uh, he's brilliant. I, I can't say it enough. He's he's I think the quote <laughs> I found an own email the other day because I wanted to see how freaking long we've been working on this project. And one of the first things I said to him was in an email and my wife was cracking up is, Stan, you're going to have to dumb it down if you're going to work with me, <laughs> 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 because he I mean, this guy's music theory. um, you know, he's just, you know, he's he's kind of more of the prog rock world, right? I mean, yes, Giraffe well, was kind of that thing. Giraffe were way ahead of their time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Kevin Gilbert was like, what a mind. I mean, he was, he no, was I love definitely Kevin Gilbert. Yeah. born in Monroe. If you love Kevin Gilbert, Tom, I think you're going to like this 1206 album because it does not sound like White Sister. It does not sound like Tattoo Rodeo. It sounds a little bit like me, DCD. But it is, it's kind of poppy and uh, it's got a couple twists of prog in there, but it's, it's very, very different. Well, that's what Kevin Gilbert and, was all about. It was pop with, with, with a proggy twist to it. Yeah. And, 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 you know, a lot of that stuff is Stan was doing that with him back in the day. So it's, 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 that's where this all came from. So nice. Stan had some music, Stan had some stuff recorded and I said, well, send me what you're working on. So he sent me some things that it just blew my mind. I and mean, it was, it was like, uh. I don't even know how to, it was like maybe Marillion. Some of it sounded like Marillion. Some of it sounded like Mike and the Mechanics. Mm, nice. um, a lot of chord changes, a lot of, a lot of melodic stuff, mm. no vocals, just music. So I took a bunch of this stuff and I started editing and piecing it around with melodies. And I threw some vocals on a couple of things and sent them back to him. And he, he loved it. So we just started working on stuff. Oh, boy, it, it, the problem is, is that yeah. I had a day job. He has a day job. He works for Fender Music and he's a, he's a, you know, he's an R&D at Fender. And he's running around the, the country, hot riding Fender amps and delivering them to the edge. And, and, you know, what's his name? I can see his face. The other hot the guitarist out there, the uh, guy with the glasses and the suit on. What's his name? Joe. Joe uh, Bonamassa. Joe Bonamassa. Thank you. He's, you know, Stan has hot rodded all his amps for him and everything. And so he was really busy. So everything took a long time, forever. We just finished mastering the thing. In fact, I was sitting here a couple hours ago listening to the some of the mastered pieces in my little room here. But we just finished mastering and i still have the website up in front of me on cd baby when you guys call me because i'm trying to figure out how to get the isrc codes to embed in the mastering before i submit it to cd baby so i'm <laughs> going back and forth to these guys but 
It's called 1206. I can't tell you why yet because I think we're having a contest to, to guess why it's called 1206. Well, that's what uh, I was going to ask you. How? Where did that name come from? <laughs> I can't tell you. You, you got to wait. Look okay. at everybody else and find out. Okay. But uh, it's it's kind of cute. It's a little cute. Uh, but uh, it's just Dan and I, and we brought in a couple of drummers on some songs. We got a drummer name. The first single is called uh, Have You Ever Seen The Real Me? And uh, I did write it about uh, a woman that I used to work with that really wanted nothing to do with me until she saw my videos online and all of a sudden she was my best friend. Mm. So it's about those people in your life that uh, no matter what you do, doesn't have to be a, a musician, but you know what I mean? They won't, you won't give you the time of day until they find something out about you that they like. And all right. of a sudden they want yeah. to be your buddy. It's like, yeah, fuck you. Where were you last month? Exactly. <laughs> so uh, real me is about that. And uh, I had a, a buddy of mine, Frank Reyna played drums on that. Another tune I did, which I'm not going to tell you yet until we're not recording. Uh, I had uh, Mark Van Zeisen from the River Dogs uh, play drums on it. Uh, he's another he's another Burbank guy. Uh, he played drums on that. And another buddy, Nick Amoroso, played on another song. And uh, Jason Montgomery, who played with White Sister in the UK for those Firefest shows, I got him to do a song. And the other three songs I played, uh, which I've never done. I've never, I mean, I've played drums my whole life, but I've never recorded. So that was kind of fun. So it was kind of neat to get out on a couple of songs. And it's really weird to listen to a song back with you playing the drums and the bass on it. Right. It's like, hey, it's physically impossible. How did that happen? <laughs> um, so it really gave me a lot of respect for, uh, you know, everything that uh, Wolf Van Halen just did, you know, and playing everything yeah. on his record. It's like, holy shit. You go in and do something, a little piece. I mean, I just did two instruments and that guy played everything. You know, it's like, wow, that's that's impressive. So, but I think that project, I think you guys will like it. Um, oh, I, I think, think I'll like it. Yeah. With the, with the, I think a lot Kevin of people Gilbert that like that little twist. Yeah. If you like the Gilbert stuff, um, it's not quite like Giraffe, it's more like Kevin Gilbert's stuff. So I think if you like that, you'll like it. I'm just, I'm just pounding in everybody's brain that it's not. Don't don't expect White Sister or sure. Dr. Radio because that's not, that's not what it's going to sound like. You're going to be disappointed sure. if you think that's what's going to come out of the speakers. Fun with it. I had a lot of fun with it. I learned a lot. He pushed me really hard. He's very schooled and very knowledgeable, and I'm just like the rock guy from L.A. that you know pounding eighth notes on the bass. Like, what are we doing? How do I play that? You know? Yeah. So he really got a lot out of me. I played all the bass on everything, and I learned a lot from him, and had to really really like uh, bring it to just be in the same room with him yeah will this be re uh, released uh, digitally or as cd or yes. physical product yeah so we're gonna we're doing it totally indie but uh, like i said we're gonna go through cd baby likely and just let them do the digital distro on it and you know we'll make a few hundred cds because some people still like that um, oh, we do too. How do, you, how do you guys how do you guys feel about cd cd oh it has to be cd yes uh, it, it, it go, has, CD. i'm a collector on top of being a music nut and okay, I don't so feel you gotta like I have the physical copy. I have to have the physical property because I, I grew up in the sixties and the seventies and I still yeah. read, I read booklets. I have to know the musicians names. I have to know who produced it. <laughs> I don't feel yeah. like I could digest the music until I have it in my hand and I'm reading the booklet and it's, it's just that it's, I guess it's an age thing. <laughs> I don't know. No, Hey, I'm, well, I'm it's 51. funny because I, I was talking to my daughter about it last night. I, 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 I don't know, something came on, we were watching something and something came on TV about a record and she goes, you know, what was the big deal with the records? And I go, Summer, Summer, my daughter, by the way, sings a verse in one of the songs that's on this new record, which is kind of cool. Oh, cool. Um, she's uh, 30, 33 now. Shit, I'm old. Yeah, she's 33. <laughs> um, she's, uh, she goes, what was the big deal with the records? And I just, my wife looked at her and I looked at her and she goes, what? I said, you guys really 
your whole generation, everybody, you know, that's that's younger now, really missed out on that experience. Yes. And it, it's you can't you can try to tell them what it was, but to go by the record and to bring it home and put that thing on as carefully as you could to mm -hmm. not get your fingerprints all over it. Absolutely. And then sit there and read the freaking cover and the inside every time you put it on. It was like, you know, reading a cereal box, like, you know, when you're right. a kid, like, I gotta read this. I gotta know. I wanna know what's going on. And I'm so, still like that. I'm 63 and I'm still like that. And I grew up in the 60s. I treated music like that in the 60s. I still treat it go. like that to this day. <laughs> and and, and it, you know what I mean? It's like hard to explain to somebody what that was because it, you just, they don't know. And it's, unless you did it, right? unless you sat down there and did it and the, everybody that everybody that's just had nothing but digital now in their lives, just, just don't get it. So, but it is, it's a little, it's a little piece of magic. The, the, um, I used to go to bed and, uh, and and listen to the radio when I was going to sleep and had the had the old you know analog radio in the corner of my room and the little blue light glowing on it you know that would make like a nightlight you know that was how you know you call in and request a song and sit there and wait in front of the radio you know that's the, for my solo album heard it on the radio that's what that whole line was about the blue light glows for my radio oh. it was about just laying there in bed mm -hmm. maybe with headphones on or something and that little light was glowing from your old you know Marantz or something in the corner and that was like magic. And then when your shit got played, if you asked for them to play a song or something, it was like, it was awesome. We're in a different world now. Everything's uh, instant gratification. So that doesn't hold any, I mean, any interest to people anymore. But, but, but do press those it, guys, CDs we can hold on to people it. buy them. <laughs> yeah. There, there well, are I mean, a lot of people in, that are into music the way we are that, that absolutely want a physical. Copy. Yeah. And I'm going to, you know, I'm working at, we're going to press up like maybe a couple hundred or something. And that's all we're going to sell probably. But that, I'm going to do it because people want it. You know? 500 is usually what like the little indie uh, labels do. 500 press on the CD. Yeah. Well, that's what I did. And I got probably half of them left in my closet. So. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> do three. <laughs> do three. Everybody went, did, everybody went, let me tell you something. When, my, when, I, when I released I, in 24 hours, the next morning, it was on 25 websites streaming. To go, to go back to my comment earlier about I can do this by myself. I don't need a record company's help to yeah. pirate my music you know right it was on 25 sites in 24 hours oh yeah i believe and i talked it. to my i talked to my publishing guy and he goes yeah don't even he goes you can try to get them off of there but they'll just pop back up right like <laughs> that's when i gave in and and at the time when i released that in 2015 i didn't even i think uh you know they give you like on cd baby and you go to these sites they give you a checkbox do you have digital distribution yes or no and then you know back then it was like maybe a dozen of them now it's like two dozen but you check all these boxes and i was like i checked like the two or three of the main ones that said everybody else can fuck off you know well that was <laughs> right. wrong that was very wrong and i i went back a year later and rechecked all the boxes and put it back out but it you know it's a, you're gonna you're gonna lose that battle and that doesn't mean you have to let go of like tom and i don't have to let go of the cd not gonna and let the go packaging of and stuff but no, but you still way. but you still gotta do you gotta do the everything else too you gotta put it out there digital because oh people, you gotta cover your bases yeah, yeah absolutely so yeah, we're gonna do uh, some CDs and we'll do some. Uh, we're gonna we'll do the digital regular digital distro and then it'll be it'll get YouTubed and it'll just be out there. It's like a wild animal. You throw it out there and you don't know where it's going exactly. because you don't have any control any, right. anymore. I don't. The record companies don't even have that much control over it. No, anymore. they don't. But it'll be out there. And you know, you guys will get one. Don't worry about it. Well, where uh, <laughs> where can everybody follow along to uh, you know the release schedule and everything? Do you have a website? Is it uh, DennisChurchillDries.com? I have a horrible, shitty-ass paint-by-numbers site that I haven't updated in years, but <laughs> I decided to hang on to it 
because I knew that this 1206 thing was going to be coming up soon. So it'll be, you know, it'll be out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I will get around to updating that site or have my daughter help me because I'm such a dork with that stuff. <laughs> but uh, and it'll be, you know, I'll have it out on, on my uh, Facebook and Instagram. It'll be splashed on there and uh, and Stan Cody's as well. OK, great. Well, Dennis, hey, I really appreciate this. Uh, Tom and I had a really good, uh, good time talking to you tonight. And uh, we're going to let yeah, you I need go. a beer. That's right. <laughs> I had a tequila I while, I, while go, I did this. I so go forget about you got to come prepared. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it was great to talk to you guys. I, you know, it's 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 really cool to talk to people that that love music like you guys do and appreciate it and connect with things. And and I love what you guys are doing and, and giving a voice to so, so artists like myself that that uh, don't have the big uh the big machine behind them and, and, and uh, which, you know, I, I probably never will again. And I don't even want it. I just, I'd rather be grassroots and, and be connecting with people like you. And, and uh, it means a little bit more to me and, and I appreciate you guys. So thank you for what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thanks. I mean, that's what we, we set out to do when we started this podcast six months ago is uh, we wanted to be more in depth because we are music lovers and we wanted to have the guests on that have always touched us and have always been special to us. And that's what we've been having, right? We haven't had one guest, yet on that is a huge favorite to at least one of us and most of them have been both of us so it was a pleasure well, that's talking cool, man. to you it, it really was that's cool and i'm sure i'm sure you're getting uh, some music back to people that weren't even aware of something so that's that's a cool we, part we too. are that, that's what i uh, that's what i'm enjoying too we're getting we're getting great feedback on, on all the sites so it's uh it's been rewarding so far and it, it's great having guys like you come on i appreciate Thanks, you giving man. us your time yeah appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me. You all guys right, rock, Dennis. man. Keep it up. All right. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. Bye bye. Appreciate it. Cheers. Take care.